The Cancer Mavericks, a history of survivorship, is made possible in part by our signature partner, Amgen. Committed to transforming new ideas and discoveries into medicines for patients with serious illness. When my brain cancer treatments were over, it was 1996. My friends and my family were awesome, but no one really understood what I was going through. I had no hair, really skinny, couldn't eat solid food, liquid diet. What 22-year-old drinks in Shore? That's not very cool. Grad school plans were canceled. And then came like the what next conversations. I was just like, what the hell do I do with my life? All I did was go to the gym every day and walk for like 10 minutes. I had to rehab myself somehow. Did they offer the concert pianist PT for his hands? No. Did they offer the pediatric cancer patient physical rehab to build back some stamina? No. Did they offer me nutrition therapy to regain any sense of autoimmune function? No. Nothing. Not even a social worker. Zero. Do I sound a little angry? Because I was. Still am. And I'm not alone. Some of that anger fuels advocacy and action. From Offscript Media, my name is Matthew Zachary, and you're listening to The Cancer Mavericks, a history of survivorship. The story we're telling, the mavericks we're following, are cancer survivors who walked away from the disease and into a mountain of problems. And then they turned around and did something, something important. They're journalists, oncology nurses, and really just regular folks like you and me. But they started questioning their doctors about debilitating surgeries or urging politicians to fund more cancer research. They were building support networks. They were growing a movement. By 1998, when NCCS leaders organized the March to Conquer Cancer, tens of thousands of people were rallying in the streets of D.C., survivors, side by side with politicians. Some might say that I'm a cancer survivor, but if you ask me, I'm a cancer conqueror. Well, we're here today because we want to be the generation that wins that war against cancer. Today we say no more cancer, no more waiting, no more pain. In an article in the Washington Post, reporters described the crowd as an indicator of cancer's trek through every racial, socioeconomic, and generational subset. At that time, there were 8 million survivors in the United States. Today, 23 years later, that number has more than doubled. Let's just pause for a moment. 17 million cancer survivors living in the United States. That's an amazing number, right? 
Now think about each one struggling through the up complications of cancer. They tend to put up a brave front because after treatment ends and they ring the bell or you have balloons and celebration in the chemo room, uh, it's not over for the patient. You know, the family thinks it's over. The people who are taking them to get their chemotherapy treatments uh, or providing food at home, they think, oh, gee, you know, you're on your way to recovery. That is Dr. Patricia Gans. I call her Patty. I'm a physician and medical oncologist. Understatement, if I ever heard one. She's a badass. I've uh, treated all different kinds of cancer patients over my career, but I've been interested in the post-treatment aspects of cancer since the 1980s and was one of the founding members of the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship in 1986. She spent the last 40 years doing research on late effects of cancer and teaching at UCLA. Oh, yeah. And? I'm uh, actually the Associate Director for Population Science Research at the Johnson Comprehensive Cancer Center, as well as a professor in the School of Public Health and the School of Medicine. Gans says the celebrations and ringing of the bell are an exciting final stop on the cancer war. Months of chemo, radiation, surgeries, and other treatments are over. And yes, it looked like it worked. But to a cancer survivor, there is a lot of new work to do. For that person, it's just the beginning of a journey to try and get used to what's called the new normal. In this episode, we're going to zoom out a little and capture a snapshot of that new normal. It's a term that I have mixed feelings about, but it also kind of just really fits. Starting off this new normal, well, there's no pretty way to describe the effects cancer has on one's body. It's hell. My whole chest was radiated which means that all my organs have been compromised in some way. And for some reason, I can't absorb nutrients. I'm very skinny. I weigh as much as a mosquito. I have a constant level of fatigue. I just feel like I never get quite enough sleep. Sometimes I'll be walking and I can't feel my feet against the pavement just feels like sand. It just feels like sand and a bunch of needles. That impacted my fertility, so we were not able to have our own children um, biologically. I was running late, and I took off to run, but I could not run. Like, in my mind, I was running. My body was not physically ready to run. My muscles weren't there. The physical uh, harm we do to people in order to cure the cancer is quite profound. Patricia Gans. When I uh, started my training as an oncologist in the 1970s, um, patients were still losing their limbs for a bone tumor. Um, they were uh, having radical mastectomies. They were quite disfiguring and, and complicated. Today, treatments 
have improved so much and amputations are rare. Many of those 17 million cancer survivors likely would have had a very different fate 20 years ago. But their life-saving treatments have also been toxic. In a substantial uh, number of individuals, 15, 20, 25 percent, persistent symptoms that just don't go away. It may take a year or two for most people to get better, but there's a segment of the population who will have ongoing physical symptoms, um, which may interfere with their ability to work and function. Many survivors describe a mental fog known as chemobrain the surgery, the radiation, the chemotherapy, uh, and endocrine therapy that all can affect aspects of how fast people process things. You could be in the middle of a conversation and just, you forget a word or you'll forget your train of thought. And that conversation or that word may pop up an hour later or a month later. That's Marla Arrington. She's from Baltimore. In 2007, she was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. She says chemobrain is actually more than just forgetting something. It's more a slowness of thinking. And when it happened to her, Marla was pretty shocked and confused. She scoured the internet looking for answers. So I had to teach a lot of my doctors about chemobrain by bringing in articles because most of them have never heard of it before. Some of them told me I was just getting old. Who tells a 42-year-old or 44-year-old at that point that you're just getting old and your memory is just going? She had to convince her doctors it was real. And then she found a program at the hospital where patients experiencing chemobrain would see a speech therapist and a neuropsychologist. They worked together as a team. It was extremely helpful while it lasted. Marla says she actually saw benefits from the therapy, but she had to battle health insurance, or play the game, as she put it. Insurance will only pay for speech therapy for, I think, two or three months. So you would have to try to play the game by choosing the last two or three months of the year and choosing the first two months, you know, you have to play that game. Under her plan, she was allotted only so much of this rehabilitation therapy. But that cap meant that Marla didn't get enough sessions, and she didn't see a long-lasting impact. Marla's chemo brain kept getting in the way of her day-to-day life. She says she found it really hard to do her job, a job she loved, and she ended up quitting. Dr. Karen Winkfield is a radiation oncologist and the director of the Meharry Vanderbilt Alliance. She says it's common for a patient's health insurance to cover the cancer treatments, but that's it. Nothing after that. It only covers active therapy. And then some insurance providers don't allow for mental health services. So I'm thinking just about psychosocial, but we're not even talking about physical therapy, occupational therapy. What happens if you're an adolescent young adult who ends up getting part of your bone removed because you have a sarcoma and you need physical therapy, long-term physical therapy to help with your walking and your ability to move? What happens if you turn 27 and you just came off your parents' insurance? Can't talk about the cancer survivor's new normal 
without talking about health insurance. What happens if you don't have insurance? My name is Rebecca Esparza. I live in Corpus Christi, Texas, and I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer at age 30 in November of 2001. I didn't have health insurance. Rebecca used money from her 401k to pay for her hysterectomy. But after using up her savings, she still needed chemo. I kind of languished in the system for a couple of months, you know, applying for things, hitting a roadblock. One hospital system asked for $20,000 just to start things rolling. Rebecca was lucky. She found an income-based program that covered her chemotherapy. Without it, she says, she either wouldn't be here or she'd be trapped under a pile of debt. When you look at medical bankruptcy in the United States, cancer care is the number one cause of medical bankruptcy. There's even a name for this, this draining of your assets and bank accounts. Look up the term financial toxicity. The National Cancer Institute defines it as problems a patient has related to the cost of medical care. A recent study in the journal Health Affairs showed that cancer patients are two and a half times more likely to declare bankruptcy than those without cancer. After this break, we'll hear how the cancer survivorship movement pushed doctors to recognize the emotional toll of cancer. Additional support for the Cancer Mavericks, a history of survivorship, is made possible by the following partners. Bristol-Myers Squibb, Daiichi Senkyo, Merck, Seagen, Takeda, Pharmacyclics, an AbbVie company, and Janssen. Learn more about these supporters at cancermavericks.com. So you know by now that cancer made me pretty angry. In fact, it brought out a whole slew of emotions. Producer Mary Rose Madden is going to break that all down for you. There's a heaviness to experiencing cancer up close, and it doesn't go away when you're supposedly in the clear. The new normal has its own emotional weight. The mental toll that that it takes on you is... Is, is the hardest part. It's, you know, it, it's the biggest challenge. Um, you know, I, I think that I'm currently, currently facing um, with my cancer. Um, and it's, it's probably the last thing they prepare you for when you're going in to fight it. I had four or five friends that was going through treatment with me. I'm the only one left. You know, I have survivor's guilt. I have sadness. I started going to counseling and seeing a therapist. They talked about me having PTSD. And it was real. And I thought, okay, it's not me. I'm not crazy. Up to 55% of survivors report cancer-related PTSD. And 30% say they feel anxious or depressed following treatment. Terry Scheinzeit was diagnosed with a rare type of kidney cancer when she was six in 1960. She's been a survivor for so long, she's like an expert. For a while, her doctors tried to help her gain weight, 
You heard her in the beginning talking about how she weighs less than a mosquito. At one point, they suggested hooking her up to a bag of extra nutrients. I looked at the doctor and like went, what? Like, who are you talking to? You can't be possibly talking to me. She was connected to the bag for 10 hours a day, about five days a week. And I got very depressed. I really didn't, I wasn't sure I wanted to keep living like this. And so when I, you know, when I asked the doctor, how long am I going to be on this? And she said, well, like, this is it. This is probably how you're going to have to live. They said, I can't live like this. I don't, I don't want to live like this. They stopped the line of nutrients. And today, Terry is a solid 90 pounds, happy, performing original music in New York City. Bright bouncing balls that soar and quickly rise Come crashing down sometimes Dr. Gans says for a long time, honestly still sometimes today, nobody noticed the limited physical function, the depression, the chemo brain, neuropathy, etc., etc., Doctors were accustomed to looking at the tumors, not so much the patients. And many friends and family just thought when treatment was over, all that's behind us. But some cancer badasses, or mavericks, like Ellen Stovall and Gantz herself, saw what cancer survivors were going through. They were alive, but not thriving. In the 2000s, Ellen and her team were lobbying for the cause, And as a result, the Institute of Medicine, now called the National Academy of Medicine, or NAM, started asking for an analysis of how cancer survivors were managing. There were three or four reports that came out in the early 2000s that led people to believe that a more organized approach to monitoring the health of survivors would be appropriate. They needed a plan to take care of these cancer survivors. The first report out in 2006, called Lost in Transition, addressed how survivors return to their regular doctors once they're in remission. Patients told us, oh, I have, you know, this ache and pain or I have a cough, it's not going away. And the primary care doctor would say, well, you need to go back to your oncologist. Sometimes the patient wanted to go back. In other cases, even if the issue wasn't at all related to their cancer, regular doctors recommended they go back to the oncologist, just in case. But all that back and forth was hard for patients to navigate, and it clogged up the oncology units. Patients were kind of lost in terms of, well, what kind of follow-up care do I need? Who should I see? And uh, how do I know what to be on the lookout for? The report identified the unique challenges of the post-treatment period and it looked to oncologists to recognize the need for treatment summaries and care plans. It also advocated for primary care doctors to coordinate better with the oncologists. Now, the next report, Cancer Care for the Whole Patient, that came out in 2008. It showed that psychosocial problems created by cancer, quote, cause additional suffering, weaken adherence to prescribed treatments, and threaten patients' return to health. Basically, it said psychosocial treatment must be part of a patient's standard of care, that it was just as important as the physical stuff. The report was written by leading cancer experts and scientists. It was a big deal. We need to see them as whole people and address them as whole people. That's Brad Zebrak. He's an oncology researcher as well as a social worker. 
when we attend to the psychological and social aspects of people's lives during therapy, but even afterwards, we see much better health outcomes. The research bears this out. But would the cancer world take this research and change? Back in the early 80s, the wellness community had started a free cancer care center out in Santa Monica, California, and others were sprouting here and there. They were focused on psychosocial care. At the same time, Terry found her first support group at a hospital. I remember I went there that first night and people going around the room and everyone was sharing their story. And people were talking about it very matter-of-factly. Terry had never met anyone else who had had cancer. So when it was time to share... And I started bawling, like hysterically bawling. And I was sort of shocked because it happened so long ago. And I didn't think, I was like, what's, what's going on? Survivors needed more places where they could meet others who'd been through the same thing. At the time, doctors weren't really paying attention to psychosocial needs, but they were starting to pick up on survivors' long-term physical problems. So the whole idea of post-treatment organized care in a, quote, survivorship clinic really came out of the pediatric practices in the 90s. Gans says doctors were watching their pediatric cancer patients very carefully, observing how their bodies reacted to the treatments. They were having cognitive issues, learning deficits, and they weren't growing properly. And so they established these clinics for the research to understand the long-term and late effects of their treatments, but also to be able to provide that kind of follow-up care. That was the 90s. Adult survivorship clinics didn't start for a while after that. I would say that we didn't really see much in the way of adult um, survivorship clinics in a formal way until the uh, 2000s. And that was only in very selective places and a handful of hospitals or cancer centers. But the organized care was sorely needed. Now, remember those reports we mentioned Gans chaired the last big one for the National Academy of Medicine. The researchers and writers were trying to sound the alarm about the need for better survivorship care. You know, we have this crisis and there are growing numbers of new cancer patients because of the aging of the population. And we have all these other survivors. I think it might have been 15 million by that time. And this is going to be facing us with really a tsunami of older individuals 10,000 people turning 65 every year. So those survivorship clinics where doctors monitor cancer survivors, Gans says they're so limited and they haven't expanded to routine care. Which brings us to today. Today, we have 17 million survivors trying to forge through a new, rather messed up, normal. A new abnormal, if you will. Hopewell Cancer Support is a community for people across the cancer trajectory, from diagnosis to end of life and to those post-treatment or in remission. Hi. Hey, how are you? Good. I'm here for Susan. Yeah, Suzanne okay. Brace is the executive director, a founder, and a cancer survivor herself. Hopewell's been around for 30 years, but it's not a survivorship no. clinic. No, we're a community. I mean, we are very proud of being a community of people with cancer, you know, people who have cancer in common. That's their common bond. 
clinic means hospitals. Okay. And so in anybody's mind who's been in the world of cancer care, if you say clinic, it automatically puts you in a medical setting. Hopewell sits on eight acres of meadow, tall grass, lots of trails, some flowers. There's even a creek you can walk down to. At the edge of the meadow, there's a farmhouse with couches and comfy chairs, several fireplaces and a big kitchen. And there's an Amish barn with an open layout, nothing too fancy. But it was just right for Marla Arrington. Remember her? She's the survivor you heard earlier who had severe chemo brain. Marla didn't have a partner, brothers, sisters, or children to help her during her treatment. She did have a few friends. Still, when she lost the job she loved, she says there was this emptiness. In the beginning, when I was going through my storm, I felt rejected. I mean, rejected by my job, rejected from this hospital. Marla heard about Hopewell, and she began going to discussions and classes. Everything there is free. Soon she was volunteering at pop-up events and making calls to help cancer survivors. On the day we spoke, she had just scored free groceries for a Hopewell member. Her husband, they have bad backs and they're senior citizens, so I was able to find an organization to come and deliver them free produce. And so I do things like that. She's volunteered at Hopewell for 10 years, even though she's been cancer-free for seven. People often ask me, why are you still at Hopewell? Well, I want to give new survivors hope. Over the years, more and more communities like Hopewell were established around the country. It's hard to say exactly how many centers there are now, but many were formed by individuals or groups of individuals, let's call them mavericks, who saw the need and filled the void. They provide a huge range of resources and support services. You've got you know, not only oncologists and nurses, but you've got psychologists, social workers, chaplains, physical therapists, all the people who can be put in place to address all the multiple and complicating aspects of cancer. That's Brad Zebrak, the oncology social worker. He's describing the ideal setup for psychosocial care. We're at a point now where some centers have it, some centers don't. There's really inconsistency across the country. Dr. Gans says what type of survivorship care you get really depends on where you get your cancer treatment. Physicians in oncology vary in their interest in taking care of the whole person. It's like they've identified the problem. They've even identified some solutions. But... The people who are most likely to benefit from those types of supportive care services don't have access to them, don't use them, and therefore don't benefit from them. And I think we're still struggling um, with those inequities in the healthcare system today. My name is Bridget Hempstead, and um, I live in Seattle. Bridget remembers her experience in 1996, trying desperately to get a mammogram. My doctor, she began, she did the exam, and then she asked me a laundry list of questions. And then she began to tell me reasons why I didn't need to get a mammogram. And the last reason she told me was, you don't need to get a mammogram because you're African-American and it doesn't affect your community. And at that point, I just, I, I kind of stopped breathing. 
And I looked at her and said, I want a mammogram and I want it now. A much more forceful voice. Turned out, Bridget had breast cancer. Her doctor called and apologized, said she'd been taught that black women didn't need to get mammograms. Three days after being diagnosed with cancer, Bridget started an organization called Sierra Sisters. They've been supporting other black breast cancer survivors for 25 years. Today, compared to whites, black Americans have a 39% higher risk of dying from breast cancer. But back when Bridget was diagnosed, you didn't hear about that. In 1996, all you saw were white women celebrating that they're breast cancer survivors. The reason you didn't see Black women is because our voices were discounted when we came in with signs and symptoms and the Black women were dead. Disparities have gotten better over the past 30 years. According to the 2020 American Association for Cancer Research Disparities Progress Report, But for more than four decades, African-Americans have had higher cancer incidence and mortality rates than all other racial and ethnic groups in the United States. Dr. Karen Wingfield, the radiation oncologist and director of the Meharry Vanderbilt Alliance. Oftentimes when people talk about cancer disparities, there are some people who automatically roll their eyes because they assume that we're talking about disparities related to race and ethnicity. And while that is one of the largest gaps, let me make it clear that there are disparities in terms of cancer incidence, meaning number of new cases and outcomes for a variety of different populations, rural populations, LGBTQ plus population, adolescent young adult population, older adults. But the most egregious case of not only health disparities, but cancer disparities we see in the black community. Systemic racism has meant Black people get unequal, lesser cancer care. The healthcare system and survivorship services have a long way to go to make cancer care more equitable. Winkfield says right now, both seem to cater to the privileged. Think about it. You're expected to take off from work. So if you're a worker, if you are somebody who actually gets paid for the time that you work, hourly wage earner, and you have to go to a doctor's office for initial consultation, set of labs, whatever, you could be there half a day, right? At minimum, (laughs) sometime for the initial consultation. But you also have to get there. What happens if you don't own a car? You know, what happens if you live in a rural community? It's literally an all-day affair. An affair that can't be avoided, but has a huge cost. That was senior producer Mary Rose Madden. So what have we learned? Well, surviving cancer can get you physically, emotionally, and financially screwed up. And then it's time to go back to work. After the break. The Cancer Mavericks, a history of survivorship, is a product of Offscript Media, the first podcast network and educational publisher focused on health equity and patient advocacy. Learn more about our growing network of podcasts and critically acclaimed docuseries at Offscript.com. That's Offscript, no T, dot com. 
Surviving cancer felt like a job in and of itself. I mean, you're the executive director of your health insurance, your psychosocial care, your very own future. But really, you also need to keep the lights on, right? How are you going to pay the bills? Remember Rebecca Esparza, self-employed but uninsured when she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer? Well, she remembers when she first got diagnosed. I remember thinking, I wonder if I'm going to still be alive a month from now. And then I, I remember thinking, what the heck am I going to do for work? With so much uncertainty, Rebecca didn't know how to plan. Now, in some cases, work is part of someone's life that makes them feel grounded. Losing a sense of identity while surviving with cancer is kind of, to me personally, is a bit of a double whammy. Eric Brennan runs a local chain of salons and spas. He grew up working in his family business. When he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer in 2019, he took some time off for his chemo, but he wanted to get back to the office. I don't want to let anybody down, you know, my parents or, or, or anybody else that's on the team in the company. And, you know, but that's certainly superseded by I will not let my children down either. And trying to really balance that out is something that I'm, I'm struggling with. He said living with cancer as a chronic disease is like having a dark cloud follow you all day. The number of cancer survivors who either return to work or work during their treatment, well, that number varies between cancers. According to the British Journal of Cancer, it's roughly about 60%. Going back to work can become a sign of reaching your new normal. So survivors can experience everything from total acceptance, people going totally out of their way to accommodate them. The most dramatic contrary to that is just being faced with blatant discrimination. That's Barbara Hoffman. She was at the NCCS meeting in New Mexico back in 1986. She's now a clinical assistant professor of law at Rutgers University. She says most survivors today don't face outright discrimination because of their cancer experience. That improvement is in large part because of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA. It requires employers to provide what's called reasonable accommodation. And it's a balancing test. The accommodation should be individually tailored to that person's needs, but also takes into account the employer's needs. You know, what's the nature of the job? You know, what is a reasonable balance? Kim Hall Jackson was never able to find a reasonable balance at her job. Kim was diagnosed with colorectal cancer in December of 2008. At the time, she was working for a large event planning company in Philly. She needed surgery, chemo, and radiation. She kept working through it all. My job was 100% supportive. They made time for me to take off. Um, I had um, extended family leave. I mean, it was very accommodating. But once her treatment ended, things changed. Kim was asked to only make her doctor's appointments outside of work hours, and the problems only grew from there. 
my new normal is that I'm a frequent flyer when it comes to bowel movements. So when I say frequent, I mean, I go to the bathroom anywhere between eight to 12 times a day. That's my new normal. And they, they asked me where I was all the time. And I said, you know, I'm going to the bathroom. Her supervisor started asking Kim to sign in and out whenever she left her office, including all those trips to the bathroom. I was livid. I was livid. I just was like, are you kidding? Kim faced other issues, too. She was dealing with chemo brain. So she started taking careful notes and sometimes asked people in meetings to repeat themselves. Her supervisor told her to stop. And from that point on, it kind of spiraled out of control. It, it became really hard to go to work every day. I would cry every day going home, you know, telling my husband that um, they don't understand the after effects of successfully completing treatment. Kim was eventually suspended. At the meeting with HR and her supervisor, she tried to explain how her life had changed since cancer and how that impacted her at work. But her supervisor saw Kim's cancer as a thing of the past. She said, nobody cares about your cancer anymore. I remember her specifically saying, nobody cares about your cancer anymore. But that's the reason why I'm having bowel issues. They're related to me recovering from cancer. This is my new normal. Kim lost her job in 2011. She started researching the ADA, soon found a lawyer, and filed a claim. Eventually, Kim and her former employer settled out of court. We reached out to her former employer, but they didn't want to comment on her experience. Barbara Hoffman says the ADA is one solution to the challenges survivors face at work. The lesson from all of this is just having a great law in the books isn't the answer. It's always good to have a legal remedy, but the goal is to prevent the discriminatory behavior in the first place. For me, my version of normal. Obviously, piano was... was was the, the big thing. I had to adjust to the fact that I just couldn't play anymore. There was no way I was going to be a professional pianist. It just, it just wasn't going to happen. So just accepting that it was a long road to ever look in the mirror and consider myself a musician again. I threw myself a five-year remission cancer party. Before the word cancerversary was a thing, no one threw themselves remission parties. I feel like I was the first person to throw a cancer bash mitzvah in January of 01. I threw this big party. I spent all this money, rented a grand piano at Metronome Restaurant on 21st Street and 5th Avenue. My wife, Jessica, came. My parents came. All of my friends came. It was really a picture of what that experience was like to be there with my friends. And I feel like that's when I kind of hope to reclaim my version of normal. I, I didn't know what new normal was. I, I kind of just forged my way into accepting and maybe not accepting. Like, like fuck you, cancer. I'm going to throw a party for my five-year anniversary. I'm going to figure out a way to play piano again. And I did. Maybe I'd never be able to play piano 
like I did before. But that's not the point. My relationship to music, my new normal, is much deeper and more meaningful than it ever could have been. I mean, it helped me live. Really live. Next time on The Cancer Mavericks, you'll hear from the survivors who formed the alliance that set off the young adult cancer movement. I mean, it was a very heady time. We were all on fire. (laughs) We were evangelical, you remember? We all recognized each other as feeling the same and wanting to do the same thing. This is The Cancer Mavericks, a history of survivorship. And I'm Matthew Zachary. Thanks for listening. The Cancer Mavericks, a history of survivorship, is a production of Offscript Media in partnership with Small Good Thing. The executive producer is Steve Licktie. Our senior producers are Susie Armitage, Mary Rose Madden, and Andrew McDowell. Our associate producers are Mariah Dennis and Mara Laser. And our production assistant is Sophia Kurzius. Sound design and mixing is by David Schulman. And our music is composed and performed by me, Matthew Zachary. For more information about this series, visit CancerMavericks.com. That's CancerMavericks.com. 